Breastfeeding is one of those things that is naturally thought of after a baby's born, is that the baby needs milk and, and your breasts are prepared to be giving that milk. But it is actually challenging for many people. And so it's not as, oh, it just, you know, you know, breastfeed right away. And, and it, there is a little bit of a learning curve for both the person who's doing the breastfeeding as well as the baby. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists calls the 12 weeks after giving birth the fourth trimester. For the next few months, the Women's HealthCast will air a fourth trimester series with special episodes about physical recovery, postpartum mental health, birth control after pregnancy, and more. Dr. Molly Lepic joined the Women's HealthCast to talk about a very common aspect of the postpartum period, which is breastfeeding. Dr. Lepic is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the UW Department of OBGYN. She talked about how breastfeeding works, resources available to support people through the ups and downs of breastfeeding, and more. From the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and this is the Women's HealthCast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Molly Lepic back to the Women's Health Cast to talk about breastfeeding with us today. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm really happy to be here. It's one of the things I love talking about. So, um, Before we jump into our questions, can you tell me a little bit about your day job and kind of why patients come to see you? Yeah, I work here at UW as a full-scope uh, OBGYN. So I see pregnant patients, I see gynecology patients, um, kind of the full spectrum of ages um, from people who start getting their periods all the way through menopause. Um, and OB is a big part of our practice and taking care of patients kind of during the pregnancy and then obviously after the pregnancy and helping, helping them with this fourth trimester transition, which is something that I think is a really great topic to be talking about right now. When I was thinking about like, what are the, what are the topics we want to cover during this fourth trimester series? Breastfeeding felt like such a big one because I know it's hugely important and also, uh, complex and not without its challenges. So, um, I'm really excited to learn more from you about it today. Um, I want to start with, I guess, just making sure we have a great definition of what breastfeeding means. And then if there are other terms that people might hear that kind of mean the same thing. Yeah. Breastfeeding, um, is really kind of the act of providing human breast milk to a baby or an infant. Um, it's typically thought of as breastfeeding from a breast. Another term people use sometimes is chest feeding, a little bit more friendly to non-binary or, or transgender population who may choose to provide breast milk or milk to a baby. Um, there are other terms, nursing, um, people sometimes just choose to pump. So exclusively pumping um, is a phrase that you might hear um, in the kind of umbrella of breastfeeding or providing breast milk. What exactly is happening in the body for this process to occur? Yeah, it starts pretty early on in pregnancy. There's a lot of changes that happen to breast tissue during pregnancy in response to hormones. A lot of the hormones that we blame most things on in pregnancy, um, estrogen and progesterone, and that causes changes. So there's increases in lactational breast tissue during pregnancy. Um, and then that is something that's just really preparing the breast to make milk um, for a baby after the delivery. Um, that milk usually doesn't come out during pregnancy, but some people do have colostrum that expresses even during pregnancy. That can start to happen kind of mid-pregnancy. Patients will come in and be like, I, I noticed this on my bra. Like, is this okay? And we tell you otherwise outside of kind of breastfeeding and outside of pregnancy that any discharge or any nipple you know, changes should definitely be 
talk to your doctor about. But this is a pretty common finding in pregnancy. Um, and then milk production doesn't really happen until after delivery. So after a patient delivers, uh, specifically once they deliver the placenta, there's a big change again in the hormones. Um, progesterone levels drop pretty substantially after the placenta delivers, and that's what causes kind of mature milk and the, and the milk production process to really ramp up. I want to ask about one word I heard you say, colostrum. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I know what that is. Yeah, colostrum is the is the early milk. It's the um, kind of yellowy, uh, sticky first milk that usually patients have for uh, a couple of days after delivery. And it's really protein and nutrient rich, and that's kind of the baby's first food. It's the liquid gold or where that phrase comes from because it's much more yellow in color um, due to its composition compared to the mature milk that usually happens two to three, sometimes five days after delivery uh, when the milk volume increases more substantially. Um, I also wanted to ask if breastfeeding is required or if there are other ways to feed a newborn. It's certainly not required, um, but it is kind of the most uniquely um, suitable or uniquely designed form of nutrition for infants for their growth and development. Um, It has antibodies in it. There's a lot of benefits that we'll talk about in terms of what breastfeeding does for babies and moms. Um, but it is not the only way that you can feed a baby. Um, certainly there are people, like I, I spoke to earlier, that choose to pump. So instead of directly nursing a baby at their breast, uh, they might choose to pump expressed milk, pump um, and give that expressed breast milk to a baby who's then feeding through a bottle, um, which is something that some people do because they're going back to work and they do a combination. Uh, it's something that some people choose to just exclusively pump depending on kind of their life situation or and what other support they might have in the postpartum period um, or depending on kind of other factors that that play into kind of their breastfeeding dyad. The other, there's otherwise an option of formula for babies who don't get their full nutrition from breast milk. So you can do a combination of breast milk and formula or there are some patients that just choose to give formula. Formula is uh, a very adequate nutrition source for babies, but it's obviously missing some of those kind of nuanced things that you get from breastfeeding, like antibodies, like that um, protection that you can get from infections and, and things that breast milk has that formula just can't replicate. But it is a very good uh, nutritional substitute for people who choose or, or cannot breastfeed. I think you mentioned a couple um, sort of benefits of breastfeeding. Um, Can you walk me through what makes it unique or can make it extra beneficial for a parent or for the baby? Yeah. For the baby, um, like I said, because of all of the the micronutrients, because of all of the antibodies, there's hormones in breast milk, um, it provides a lot of benefit to babies. Um, Babies who are exclusively breastfed have fewer childhood illnesses, including gastrointestinal or GI illnesses, um, fewer ear infections in babies who are exclusively breastfed um, or get pumped milk. Um, There's fewer lower respiratory tract infections, so nobody can really get away from those frequent upper respiratory tract infections as as kids, but um, decreased lower respiratory tract infections, which usually are are more um, substantial infections that kids can get. There's fewer Um, patients or kids who have asthma, there's less childhood and adult obesity in people who are breastfed, uh, fewer rates of 
type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and it decreases the rate of SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. So there's a lot of um, real, really strong benefits for baby. It is easier for babies to digest than formula, um, and it often helps decrease constipation that babies can have. Um, you know, babies poop a lot. They have a lot of GI distress at baseline, just even when they're healthy and have, have normal um, nutritional intake, but it is a little bit easier for them to digest than formula. For mom, there are benefits too. Um, immediately after delivery, um, when when somebody is breastfeeding or pumping, it increase, increases rates of natural oxytocin production. And oxytocin is thought about a lot in, in pregnancy as kind of the labor and the contraction hormone. But it, because of that effect, it actually decreases bleeding that people have after delivery. So there's lower rates of postpartum bleeding uh, and specifically hemorrhage. Um, during somebody's breastfeeding journey, if they breastfeed for longer periods of time, it reduces their rates of breast cancer and ovarian cancer because it decreases that hormone stimulation to the breast tissue and the ovarian tissue because uh, it kind of the, the balance of hormones creates the estrogen and progesterone levels to be lower in, in somebody who is breastfeeding. There's lower rates of maternal diabetes and high blood pressure, uh, and there's also decreased cardiovascular disease in women who choose to breastfeed. And I, I say women is kind of the umbrella term, but certainly it's, it's anybody who's choosing to provide um, breast milk, no matter how they identify. I have two more questions for things you mentioned. So I wanted to ask, um, can breastfeeding act as birth control? Certainly in the, in the early months, it, it often is a... a supplement to to birth control. Um, there is the type of birth control that's called lactational amenorrhea method or LAM, um, which is a form of birth control, especially for the first six months after a delivery. It can be a little bit complicated because some people who exclusively breastfeed get their return of their periods. Some people who exclusively breastfeed still ovulate, and so it's not as effective as other hormonal or, or non-hormonal forms of contraceptive that we have, but it does work for some people. For lactational amenorrhea method to, to quote-unquote work or be its best, um, you have to be feeding on demand, and so people who go back to work and start pumping um, should not rely on that as much of a, a form of birth control, um, and, it, and it's a frequent feeding pattern. Like you have to feed at least six, I think it's at least six times um, in a day for, for it to potentially suppress menses. Uh, most breastfeeding babies are eating that frequently. Um, and, and so it, that in and of itself usually isn't something that makes periods come back. But obviously once your period returns, it's no longer working at suppressing ovulation. When you were talking about the um sort of hormonal levels that are affected by breastfeeding, it also made me think about if there are any sexual side effects. If um, parents are interested in resuming intercourse, can breastfeeding have any impact on the comfort or pleasurability of sex, yeah, I guess? absolutely. Um, you know, breastfeeding babies, especially in the beginning, feed 8 to 12 times a day. So um, especially in the beginning and after delivery, um, it's something that I think from a time standpoint is a big a big disruption in somebody's life. Um, babies often eat at night too. You know, we think about how they transition from being in the uterus to being outside the uterus. We're asking them to, asking parents to monitor the baby's motion and to make sure baby's moving every hour. And then 
the idea of like, well, maybe they should be sleeping for several hours at a time as soon as they're born is not practical. You know, their, their stomachs are pretty small. Um, and so they really need to be feeding 8 to 12 times in a 24-hour period. So once somebody has recovered kind of from that sleep, you know, sleep change and deprivation and chooses to resume their, their normal sexual function and their sex life, certainly continuing to breastfeed can affect some of the tissues in the vagina because it does decrease estrogen, specifically in this case. And um, some people are more sensitive to the changes in estrogen that it can occur in the vagina. Um, and so it can lead to irritation, sometimes some dryness and some painful intercourse. And so something I definitely recommend to patients is considering lubrication anytime they're resuming their um, sexual activity after a delivery, no matter the route of delivery, just because of these hormonal changes. Um, and then in patients who are continuing to have discomfort um, or are more bothered by symptoms, uh, I certainly talk to them about kind of a low-dose vaginal estrogen, um, which is safe with breastfeeding. It doesn't affect uh, milk supply. Um, other other forms of hormonal contraception where there's higher levels of estrogen in um, in like a birth control pill, for example, would probably and potentially affect milk supply. Uh, but the topical low-dose estrogen that we place in the vagina does not. How soon after giving birth does breastfeeding typically start? Like a matter of moments, hours, days, I'm telling yeah. more. Um, like I said earlier, the breast is making change, and so colostrum can be found in the breast tissue um, as early as the mid-pregnancy. And so the breast is preparing really early on in the pregnancy for milk production, specifically that colostrum production right away after after delivery. And most babies um, are ready to feed within the first hour or two after delivery. So, you know, certainly at our birthing center and, and many um, birthing centers across the country, we do a lot of skin-to-skin -skin right after delivery and kind of consider this the golden hour. That's a really great time for um, the birthing parent and the baby to bond, but also to establish that good early connection and potentially start that breastfeeding journey right away. I've certainly had babies that latch right away in the delivery room, and that's, you know, amazing. I've certainly had babies that are a little bit sleepier in the delivery room um, and take a little bit before they decide to, to latch. Um, and both of those situations can go on to have really successful breastfeeding experiences. Um, but there are things that hospitals can do, including rooming in and having the baby stay with the parents. Um, and that skin-to-skin -skin early on is really helpful. In the first, you know, two to three days, most of the baby's feeds are colostrum. And then usually two to three days after delivery, um, that milk product production transitions. We call it kind of the milk coming in. And it switches more to a mature milk, um, which instead of that yellow, thick, smaller volume um, colostrum, it increases in volume. So a lot of patients feel some engorgement as the breasts kind of fill with milk and there's a lot of fullness and a lot of um, a lot of fluid shifts that can happen in the breast as well. Um, and then, you know, in that two to three to five days after delivery, the milk volume just continues to increase and it increases incrementally until about four weeks postpartum, um, until the baby's about four weeks old. And then your milk supply actually stays relatively stable for the next um, several months, which is kind of miraculous, that breast milk is able to kind of change nutritionally to provide babies what they need 
all the way up until six months and beyond or is, you know, when you're deciding to um, introduce solid foods um, as well. How, how long do people typically breastfeed? I'm sure there's quite a variance, but how long is common for people to continue? The recommendation from the Pediatric Society, ACOG, which is the OBGYN Society, WHO, and CDC has recently changed. Um, it is recommended that dyad, breastfeeding dyads um, feed as long as they can, really up to two years or beyond. But really, 12 months is kind of nutritionally what we think of in terms of who and what babies need in terms of breastfeeding and breast milk. So they need either breast milk or formula for that full 12 months in terms of their development uh, as they transition to more uh, more solid foods. Um, the time that people breastfeed really varies. You know, some people breastfeed for a short period of time and then they decide that something's not working and they're choosing to, you know, do more formula supplementation or it doesn't work with their lifestyle. And so they might only feed for a couple of days or weeks or months and then transition to more of that formula feeding. Uh, Others choose to exclusively exclusively breastfeed, you know, 12 months, you know, 18 months, 24 months and beyond. There are certainly... Um, people who breastfeed longer than that, and it really just depends on on the desires and and what works for that for that breastfeeding dyad. What kinds of resources or supports are available for parents who are maybe learning how to breastfeed or just encountering some um, questions or challenges? Especially, I'm thinking of like while they're in the hospital. What kinds of resources are available for people? Yeah, I think. Breastfeeding is one of those things that is naturally thought of after a baby is born, is that the baby needs milk and, and your breasts are prepared to be giving that milk. But it is actually challenging for many people. And so it's not as, oh, it just, you know, you know breastfeed right away. And, and it, there is a little bit of a learning curve for both the person who's doing the breastfeeding as well as the baby. And so there is... Um, like I said, a learning curve, and there's definitely people that help right away in the hospital. You know, in the labor room, um, there's a lot of nursing support. Um, if you know, babies attempting to latch right away uh, in the in the room where they delivered. Here at, at um, our facility at Meritor Hospital, where we deliver, we have separate rooms for patients postpartum. Uh, some hospitals have a labor and delivery and recovery room all in the same room, but ours we switch to more of a postpartum floor. And on the postpartum floor. Uh, the nurses are also an excellent resource. A lot of the nurses have done additional breastfeeding training. And so they're a great kind of space to say like, hey, this is a little awkward. I'm, I'm feeling like my back's strained. How can we position these pillows to, to work on, on latching um, better? And then everybody at our hospital also is be- seen by a lactation consultant. So lactation consultants are people um, who have done additional training in breastfeeding. There are lots of different levels of kind of credentialing that a a lactational consultant can have. Um, You know, in the hospital, they're they're nurses um, who have gone on to have additional breastfeeding training. But um, different, you know, people sometimes in the community might have a CLC um, credentialing, which is a certified lactation consultant. And then there are um, like an IBCLC, which is um, a slightly higher level of training and credentialing that um, somebody has 
typically as a clinician gotten additional training in breastfeeding, whether it's a nurse or an advanced practice provider like a nurse practitioner or midwife or a physician uh, might have gotten additional training as well. All of those people can help with kind of troubleshooting the challenges of early breastfeeding, making sure that mom's positioning is appropriate, making sure that baby's um, latch is is a nice deep latch that's not painful for patients, um, especially as in the early phases of the breastfeeding journey. Outside of that hospital setting, who can someone come to with questions or concerns as they like as we get further into the postpartum period? Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, all of our clinics in OB and pediatrics have. Uh, breastfeeding champions, so nurses who have additional kind of interest and in, in education in breastfeeding. So they're a great place to start um, is to work with the breastfeeding champion in each clinic. Um, we also have outpatient lactation consultants. You can come to Meritor Hospital or you can schedule that through UW um, to have an appointment with a lactation consultant. And again, they can help troubleshoot latch difficulties and make sure that somebody's not having nipple trauma um, or, you know, the, the things that can make breastfeeding more challenging and to make sure that, that things are working well. Um, one of the things that I think is really helpful, too, is if somebody's worried that breastfeeding's not going well, um, lactation consultants can do what we call as a weighted feed where they weigh the baby before, a breast, before somebody nurses and then you nurse the baby and then they weigh the baby again after so they can figure out how much milk is the baby taking in. And, and that's one of the ways that um, we know that everything's going well in terms of mom's milk is in and she's able to give the milk to the baby and the baby is able to take that milk in and be effective in, in that eating as well. How does someone tell um, whether their baby is getting enough? Like, tell me a little bit about baby's hunger cues and kind of how to know when to feed and how much to feed. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most kind of most stressful and unknown parts of being a new parent of like, is my baby getting enough? You know, because they cry a lot. They sleep a lot. They whine a lot. It's it's so hard to to know. And the pediatricians or the family practice docs who are seeing the babies are so good at giving that anticipatory guidance of what, what you need to expect. I remember when my, you know, as an OBGYN, when I had my first baby, I was like, okay, I, I kind of understood up till now, and now I have this newborn, and now what do I do? And, and so... Um, they're really good at at helping you know when you leave the hospital what are the things that you're looking for. And one of them is making sure that babies have appropriate numbers of wet diapers and that they're continuing to have wet diapers. It's showing that they're getting enough um, intake. Another is making sure that their stools change a little bit from that meconium, which is the first stools that baby ha- babies have. It's kind of a stickier, um, almost like a tar-like, you know, dark brown or green um, sticky stool and they change more to a seedy yellow kind of mustardy stool in the several days after de- after the delivery. And that's one of the ways that you know that they're digesting and their their stools have changed as well. And then one of the big ones is growth. You know, you take babies in really frequently and make sure that they're continuing to grow on their own individual growth curves. Um, and that's one of the other ways that you can make sure that babies are taking in enough. Beyond that, if there are concerns about milk supply, things like that, there are ways that um, lactation consultants can help make sure that babies are transferring milk appropriately. 
Um, if somebody is having issues with milk supply, there are additionally breastfeeding medicine doctors that we have within the University of Wisconsin system that also can help troubleshoot some of those challenges. So you've talked about how often um, feedings happen, how how much babies eat, especially in that first like stretch of time. Um, and that feels like a lot and a big transition. Do you have any tips or recommendations for how people can be prepared for the amount of time they're going to spend breastfeeding, like make the setup and the system as as easy as possible for themselves? Yeah, I think it's one of those hard transitions that you don't really know what it's like until you're there. And every baby's different too. So I think that one of the things I talk to new parents about is having some anticipation of what things might look like, but not having expectations about what this journey will definitely look like. Because I think that's one of the ways that you're like, ah, I, I didn't expect this. And now it's so different than what your mind has built in for you that that those early weeks can really be a challenge, especially for, for patients who have imagined this, you know, beautiful, wonderful journey, which it often is, but it's still really hard. And like I said, you're often getting up every, you know, hour to two hours to three hours to, to feed a baby. So I think one of the things is whoever you have in your life to support you, letting them help support you. And I think that we've saw that a lot, especially in the pandemic, as support systems were a little bit more strained and, and we were doing a lot more distancing um, how could we as clinicians and how could the hospital and how could, you know, um, people in birthing patients' li- patients' lives support them? And um, being a little bit flexible with what that might look like I think is really helpful too. Um, I think having some kind of plan for how you're going to feed the baby is really important and knowing that breastfeeding is hard in the beginning, but then once things are going, for many people they find it to be to be a, a really beneficial and, and easy journey. But it does take a little bit of that learning curve. And so I think being willing to, to stick it out and to make sure that you're getting the help that you need uh, and not being shy about something that you think your body should just be able to do. But if it's if your latch is painful, if you feel like baby's, you know, not getting enough, definitely reaching out so that you can get the support that you need. So I'm also really excited that we have our communications intern, Paige Stevenson, with us today. Um, Paige did a ton of work preparing and researching for this episode. And um, in particular, uh, I know was interested in learning kind of about nutrition and hydration needs and some other considerations while um while breastfeeding after in this postpartum period. Uh, And so Paige is going to take our next handful of questions. And I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Um, So yeah, so what should people know about their nutrition and hydration needs while breastfeeding? Yeah, it. I uh, I will say I've never known thirst like I did in the first few weeks after I had my babies. Uh, I just feel like I was just constantly wanting wanting water, which is not my norm. I think that that's one of the big things is it takes a lot of energy to feed another human, and it actually takes more energy to breastfeed a baby than it does to grow a baby. We say you need about two hundred fifty to three hundred calories extra to grow a baby in the uterus. Uh, And to exclusively breastfeed, you actually burn or need about an extra 500 calories. 
uh, per day. So it's definitely something that um, you need to be cognizant of, especially as your body's changing. It's not really the time to just start saying like, okay, well, I've lost my, you know, like I, my body's changed after my delivery. I'm just going to eat salads all the time and really um, cut back on calories because that's not it's not what your body needs. It's not what the baby needs. Um, and so I, I just recommend to patients that you eat a well-balanced diet so that you can take care of yourself so that you can have good energy for, for feeding the baby. Um, I do recommend that you stay on a multivitamin or a prenatal vitamin just to help kind of with some of those micronutrients that you may or may not get in your diet. Vitamin D, we do not get enough of in Wisconsin, so it's something I definitely encourage, um, encourage patients to continue. Um, but yeah, an extra like 500 you know, calories a day um, trying to, that to be something healthy so it's not all junk, too. Is there any substance or food that should be avoided while breastfeeding? For the most part, most things are compatible with breastfeeding. Um, certainly, you know, there, there aren't really any foods that are particularly, you know, worrisome. Um, that you need to avoid. The idea of spicy foods or acidic foods that makes babies gassy or irritable is really an old wives' tale. Um, my, my mom said it to me. Her mom probably said it to her. We know that these food sensitivities through breast milk aren't very common. You know, there are some really, un, you know, rare instances that would be more worked through with a pediatrician of babies who might have some intolerances, but it's just not very common um, that, that people have that. Um, otherwise, substances, you know, the things we think about a lot more are like illicit substances. Um, so definitely minimizing any tobacco and smoke around a baby would be really important. Um, marijuana is not safe with breastfeeding. Uh, the amount of um, marijuana that actually gets stored in kind of the fatty substances of milk is not something we, we say is compatible really with breastfeeding. Um, certainly cocaine, that kind of thing is something I would, I would not want somebody to be using while, while breastfeeding. Um, alcohol actually is, is safe with breastfeeding. I certainly don't recommend anybody drinking a lot while they're breastfeeding just from a personal health standpoint and being able to care for their, their newborn or their infant. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, a, a glass of wine or, or, you know, something like that with dinner. It's not something that you need to pump and dump milk for. The milk, um, Alcohol content is the same as blood alcohol. So if your blood alcohol volume is really low, your milk uh, alcohol level is really low as well. And so it's something that obviously be safe and make sure that you are that you have um, support and that everybody is being safe and able to take care of a baby, but it's not something that is a contraindication to, to breastfeeding. Kind of similar, but are there any medications or vaccines that are safe or not safe to get while lactating? Yeah, um, vaccines are, are really all safe um, with with breastfeeding. It's not something that I would um, that I could think of off the top of my head that are are not compatible with breastfeeding. Um, medications, most of them are safe. Um, you know, certainly after delivery, a, a patient might need some opioid medications um, for pain if they had a C section or if they had a more extensive laceration. And we know that the amount of 
the amount of those substances in breast milk is pretty small. While opioids in general are not something that I want somebody to have in excess while breastfeeding, small amounts, especially therapeutic use, um, is definitely safe. Um, there are a lot of guidelines in terms of what medications are safe in breastfeeding. And I recommend that if somebody's on a medication that they're unfamiliar with or is not, is kind of unique, that um, they work with their physician team about, is this safe? Um, I, I know we've all had patients that have been told, oh, they were in the ER for something and they got maybe a CAT scan or they got some pain medication because they were maybe worried about a gallbladder issue or appendicitis or something after a delivery. And in trying to do the right thing and, and from kind of an idea of safety, somebody might say, oh, what? maybe you should just pump and dump that milk, when really that can be really detrimental because if a baby's getting just breast milk, the goal of breast milk is to have the right amount for the baby. And so if the baby's having to have that milk dumped out, then they need to get supplemented with milk, and it kind of creates this cycle of, of supply issues potentially. Um, but I would say that if you're being told that a medication is not safe, certainly reach out to your OBGYN or, or a pediatrician and really confirm that. What about birth control methods? Are they safe to use when you were breastfeeding? Yeah. We talked a little bit about, you know, lactational amenorrhea is a form of birth control. In any patient who is not ready for another pregnancy, um, certainly there's benefit to spacing out pregnancies from a personal health standpoint as well. Um, so I do recommend using some form of contraception if somebody's not ready for another pregnancy. Certainly the non-hormonal options are safe. Um, barrier methods like condoms, um, the copper IUD, those are non-hormonal. They're, they're not going to affect breastfeeding. They're not going to affect milk supply. Um, in general, the progesterone-only options we consider compa compatible with breastfeeding. Um, they, for most people, don't affect milk supply. So things like the progesterone-only pill, the Nexplanon, which is the arm implant, the progesterone IUDs, um, we know that these are less commonly um, forms of birth control that will affect breastfeeding. And when we say affect breastfeeding, it's really not a safety, it's more of a supply thing. And so the estrogen in combined hormonal birth control, the patch, the pill, the ring, is really what de can decrease milk supply. And so it doesn't make milk unsafe, but it can decrease milk supply. And so if somebody's milk supply is decreased, obviously they need to make sure that the baby's either getting supplemented or getting enough milk. Um, in relation to mental health postpartum, can mental health issues like postpartum depression and anxiety affect breastfeeding? Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, the postpartum period is a really unique period for, for many people. They've had a lot of hormone changes. They're tasked with taking care of this new human. They might have other children or other things going on in their life that they're also having to adapt. And now they're getting up and, you know, not sleeping. And they're, they're waking up sometimes several times overnight, which is a normal part of newborn physiology. Um, and so that can be a big challenge in and of itself to mental health. So, um, you know, sometimes that can just add to the stress of kind of new parenting and wanting to make sure that your baby's eating enough, making sure that you're taking care of the baby. And then doing that with little sleep can certainly exacerbate a lot of these symptoms for patients. 
I think one of the hard parts too is, you know, social media is really beneficial in so many ways. It can connect so much of society. You can, you know, see your friend who's had this journey and, you know, this celebrity who has this journey and these people who are famous for their pregnancy or postpartum journeys. Uh, And it can really be a nice way to connect and learn information. But I think it can also make it hard for for new moms and new new parents who are expecting this to be some way. You know, they're the the idea that a baby is going to be exclusively breastfed, but somehow still sleep eight hours a night, and you're going to be losing all of your weight postpartum, and it's just going to be this magical, glorious journey, is not the case for most people. You know, there are those rare unicorns who whose babies sleep and and. Moms are able to maintain supply. But breast milk is breastfeeding is really a supply and a demand thing in that if your breasts are not either pumping or um, breastfeeding, that milk is not removed, then your, your breasts aren't going to make more. It's really just this um, kind of fluctuation of, of uh, supply and demand. And so that can all add, I think, to the stress of what's best for, for patients. On top of that, going back to work, you know, is a big is a big change that many people have to do pretty early in the postpartum journey. You know, certainly there are patients that are going back to work, you know, four or six weeks and sometimes sooner, um, which is really, really challenging. And so I think the stress sometimes of saying you should breastfeed your baby because it is the best form of nutrition for the baby, while that's true, it shouldn't be at the cost of the mental health of the parents. And so I think that that is something that, you know, individuals' circumstances are unique. And so they have to, you know, make sure that they're getting support that they need and taking care of themselves too. Because if you're not taking care of yourself, it's hard to take care of a new human. Um, Certainly medications for most psychiatric, you know, conditions, depression, anxiety, many of those are really safe as well with breastfeeding. Um, some of them, some of the anxiety medications, um, we worry a little bit more about amount of, of medication in milk potentially getting transferred to a baby and making sure that somebody else is safe around the baby if somebody is taking a medication that might make them a little bit more sedated or tired. So all of those are things we have to take in, into consideration for somebody who's breastfeeding. And then what are some common challenges or obstacles to breastfeeding? Yeah, I think we kind of touched on that. I think one of the biggest obstacles is just the time commitment. You know, it's it's really, uh, in the beginning, it can be really challenging and, and really time-consuming. Babies are eating every two hours, and sometimes a feed takes 30 minutes in the beginning. And so you're like, wait, I just did that. Now we're doing it again. And so I think it's it's one of those things that's really challenging in the beginning, but it does get easier for most people. You know, the challenges often get easier. Um, and if somebody's goal is to exclusively provide breast milk, um, I think kind of getting through those early struggles, get to this really nice symbiotic point in your breastfeeding diet where you're like, oh, this is this is actually kind of easy and this is fun and really enjoyable. Um, you know, some of the common challenges are making sure that latch um, for a baby is is appropriate because it's one of the one of the things that you have to troubleshoot a little bit, you know, babies aren't 
even though they're ready to have milk, they're not always pros at it in the beginning. And and even experienced moms might have some difficulty with latch for individual babies. And so that's one of the things that can really make a breastfeeding journey difficult is if a baby doesn't have a good latch, it affects their milk transfer, which can affect the, the, affect the mom's supply. It, you know, can affect uh, the baby's intake if they're not, you know, growing well enough and then they're sleepy. And so it can really set off this bad cycle. Um, so I think that some of the early challenges are just kind of expectations of how often babies do need to eat, that it's a, it's a big time commitment in the beginning, but that, that often gets easier, you know, several weeks and even months into the journey. Um, and I think one of the other big parts is kind of going back to work, you know, you know, you know, decades ago, not as many women in society were working and going back to work after they had children. And so that's one of the challenges of how do you kind of maintain your desires for breastfeeding and also going back to your job and what does that look like? Um, what is the challenge of pumping in, you know, in your workday look like? And uh, for everybody, that's that's a lot different. Maybe this is a good time to talk about pumping since you just mentioned it. Can you Can you tell us a little bit more about like what pumping is, how it could maybe affect someone's milk supply. Basically, like what do people need to know about choosing or not choosing to add pumping to their breastfeeding routine? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple a couple of different approaches to pumping. Um, you know, one is certainly for people who are choosing to go back to work or, or forced to go back to work or, or needing to go back to work, um, that if you're wanting to continue breastfeeding, you have to provide breast milk still. And so pumping is a way that that can happen. Um, other times, patients who have had difficulties for whatever reason um, with latch or, you know, if a baby's had a cleft palate or a cleft lip and that makes latching difficult, sometimes pumping is really a, a great way to be able to provide breast milk. Or if somebody has a baby who's in the NICU um, and is having a harder time or is not medically able to feed at the breast, um, pumping is a great alternative as, as a way to provide breast milk. Um, pumping is either using a manual or an electric pump um, that will help extract milk from the, from the breast through a, a pumping motion that kind of mimics um, breastfeeding a little bit. There are lots of different types of pumps on the market. Um, luckily, everybody who's pregnant has um, breast milk or has a pump coverage through their insurance. So make sure you're asking your OBGYN about that during the pregnancy. Um, there are really, really great options for pumps. Um, there's, you know, pumps that people use manually and they don't take any technology or batteries, which is kind of nice if you're traveling or needing it just kind of at a, a, as a just-in-case option. There are pumps that um, plug into a wall and are really effective and really good at providing kind of what we say like a hospital-grade pump in terms of the amount of um, milk that is is pumped. Uh, and then there are wearable pumps that have become more popular too in terms of it, you can kind of do your dishes or type on a computer or pump in a little bit more of a, a discreet way because you are just tucking a pump into your bra as a, as a way to pump breast milk. And many people who pump use some combination of, of all of these. Um, and people who choose to exclusively pump, you know, making sure that that frequency of pumping in the beginning, especially when your milk supply is being established, is really important. 
Um, like I said, in the first four weeks or so after delivery, milk supply is increasing and increasing and increasing. And then it stays relatively constant for the next several months, six months, sometimes nine months, and then starts to wean a little bit as babies take more solids. Um, but making sure that you're pumping frequently enough so that you can have enough milk for baby um, is is common. So if you're choosing to exclusive, exclusively pump, I would expect you to pump at least eight times, if not 10 to 12 times in a day. And so the same pattern, essentially, that newborns are, are pumping. Uh, and as babies get bigger and milk supply regulates, sometimes that can become a little bit less. One of the things that I think is really important when you're considering pumping, too, is that if babies are getting supplements, supplemented milk, if they're getting a bottle, if they're getting formula, um, that if you're skipping a feed for your supply, it's important that you think about pumping during that time, too. So I know some patients are like, well, dad really wanted to give a bottle or grandma really wanted to give a bottle. And that's totally fine. But it's also something that if you're skipping a feed, make sure that you're pumping during that time so that you can make sure that your milk supply is continued to say like, hey, baby, drank that amount, and so you should be pumping too. And then for someone who is struggling to breastfeed, what are options or resources that are available, like lactation consultants or formula or like donor milk? Yeah, I think one of the great places to to look for help if somebody needs it is definitely through your pediatrician, your OBGYN, your midwife offices, your family practice doctor, whoever's seeing you for care. I think they're always a great spot to look for additional resources. There are um, doulas who do uh, additional postpartum care. A lot of people think of doula as more of a birth support, but there are some postpartum doulas um, as well who can help with um, kind of the the postpartum and, and the breastfeeding journey as well. Um, there are a lot of resources online, um, but that's kind of a gentle and slippery slope of you want to make sure that, that the resources you're looking at are reputable and that it's not something that's, you know, setting unrealistic expectations. Depending on kind of the circumstances, donor milk might be an option or even be able to be prescribed from a pediatrician. Certainly babies who are adopted or babies who maybe are born to somebody who's had a bilateral mastectomy or had, you know, breast tissue removed or is unable to, you know, provide breast milk for various reasons, medications or surgeries or, or various things. You know, formula is a good alternative, but they might be a candidate for donor milk as well. And so there are patients who do have extra milk or a, an oversupply that choose to donate through a milk bank, donor milk. Um, many hospitals have them. We have donor milk available for babies who need milk in the hospital um, as an alternative uh, way to, to provide them food as well. And then wrapping up, what do you wish more people knew or understood about breastfeeding, like its benefits or its challenges? Yeah, I think... Um, one of the things that's really challenging about breastfeeding, and, I, and I, I tell this to my friends who've had new babies, I tell this to my patients, that a lot of the early challenges are transient. And so if somebody's goal is to provide breast milk, to troubleshoot that with the right people and to kind of push through those early stages, because like I said, once you kind of get through that really early newborn phase where baby's never sleeping, mom's never sleeping, you guys are trying to eat and 
you know, drink and, and become a normal, normal human again, um, that once you've gotten through those early stages, the breastfeeding journey can be really beautiful and really rewarding. And it's a great time to bond, um, from a, from a, um, parent and a, and a baby standpoint, uh, even when it's in the middle of the night or when it's after a long work day, um, it can be a nice time to slow down. And so it's, it's something that I think the, the challenges are sometimes really difficult, but it is often worth it once you get past that. Dr. Lepic, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope that everybody's breastfeeding journey is what they want it to be. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW School of Medicine and Public Health Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. OBGYN communications intern Paige Stevenson provided research, editorial, and interview support. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find the UW Department of OBGYN on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the handle at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what fourth trimester health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our episode description. Thanks for listening.